I can't think of a circumstance when I was an investigator where human rights law prevented me from effectively investigating somebody, right? I really can't. And you talk to most police officers, they'll tell you that honestly. Welcome back to RightsCast, a podcast from the Human Rights Centre at the University of Essex. Tom Parker, a counter-terrorism practitioner and former UN war crimes investigator, recently published a book called Avoiding the Terrorist Trap, in which he argues that counter-terrorism strategy grounded in respect for human rights is the only truly effective approach to defeating terrorism. In this episode, Tom joins Dara Murray in a discussion exploring everything from why people engage in terrorism to how existing counter-terrorism approaches can be counterproductive. So first of all, thank you for taking the time to join me. And maybe we could begin with you introducing yourself and describing where you approach counterterrorism policy from. As we were discussing before, I've had quite an eclectic career. Um, and so I, I certainly don't approach counterterrorism policy from one direction, but probably from multiple directions. But by training and background, I'm basically an investigator. So I'm somebody who started their career working for the British Security Service uh, as an investigator working you know, primarily in the field of counterterrorism and organized crime. And this is back in the 1990s, so, so a long time ago now. After which I then spent four years working for the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia in central Bosnia. And I was on Team 9, which was the team at uh, the ICTY that actually investigated crimes committed by the Bosnian side. Uh, In the context of central Bosnia, that mostly meant Mujahideen volunteers who were fighting on the side of the Bosnians. And a lot of those guys, of course, went on to form part of the core of Al-Qaeda. It's not terrorism, it's a different context, it is is a civil war, but many of the characters that would become significant later on passed through that conflict. I mean, when September 11th happened, that's where I was working. So, you know, we we were very much uh, on the cutting edge of Western knowledge of where Al-Qaeda had come from. So that was quite illuminating. Then I I moved to America and uh, had to sort of sit quietly on my hands waiting for a green card. And my wife was working at Yale. And so I found myself uh, hanging out with a lot of Yale professors. The incredible thing in in the United States after 9-11 was there were really only about four or five people actually teaching terrorism in the United States at any level of significance whatsoever. Yale didn't have anybody. There was a course on intelligence, but there wasn't really a course on, on terrorism. And so one of the professors that I got to know said, look, we, we have adjuncts here. Why don't you go away and, and do some research on this? And, you know, when you're able to, to, to work here, come back and um, maybe, you know, maybe we can find a spot for you to teach. So having had a little bit of a background on terrorism, I went away and did some research. Something, of course, that you don't do at all, really, when you're actually a practitioner. You know, you dive straight in, you're very focused on individual mm-hmm. cases. I'd never had a chance to take a step back and get a perspective. Although I had been through a little bit of an interesting conversion as a security service officer, because I, I joined the security service. I'd been blown up in an IRA attack in central London on my last year at university. So just as I was graduating, I was in the, the Honorable Artillery Company when it was bombed by the IRA and oh gosh, it must be 1990. So I, I started off as a fairly aggressive, kind of hard-charging security service officer who just thought terrorists were, were very bad men and needed to be stopped you know, in any way we could stop them. And I vividly remember doing the Irish background briefing course, which was a, a week of intensive sort of Irish history. And you know, they bring in people, in, in, even some undercover agents that were actually infiltrated mm-hmm. into different organizations, police officers, the Garda came over and, and did a talk. Um, you know, really a wide perspective from a whole range of different perspectives that 
you know, frankly, we never encounter in our education system in the UK. And I, I vividly remember on the Friday afternoon walking out of this course thinking, my God, no wonder they hate us. <laughs> and realizing that actually there was another side to the argument. Um, and that was quite a sort of a dramatic revelation for me at the time. Um, one that I parked and got on with the job and didn't, didn't really impact, you know, as a, in, in my 20s, much of my thinking on the subject. But it was a moment where I realized it wasn't a one-dimensional thing. It was, it was more complex. So sitting in New Haven, Connecticut, doing a little research, I started to scratch away at that itch a little bit more and gain a little bit more perspective. And as I did that, I started to see patterns and patterns that really nobody was writing about yet. There are a couple of sort of histories of terrorism out there. Walter Lacour written a good one. While I was there, Hoffman, Bruce Hoffman produced his, uh, his famous book. But there weren't huge attempts to try and knit together grand themes. And so that became kind of a, an interest for me. And the first thing that I noticed was that a lot of terrorism was driven by a response to the state response to the initial mm. terrorist act. And I noticed that very, very early on, this idea that, at least in democracies, it's often the undemocratic response to terrorism mm. that drives the terrorist activity. And that was kind of the, the first insight that I had that I, I kept coming back to. And at the same time, as that happened, I found myself working more and more with human rights organizations. Mm. Now, this mm. is not my background by disposition or training. Obviously, doing international justice and war crimes, you become acclimatized to concepts of human rights uh, and human rights abuses. But I was never a human rights guy. That was never really my interest. What happened was you had that period in the early 2000s where universal jurisdiction became something of a, a fashion. Uh, you had attempts in Bell to prosecute uh, war criminals from the Congo, for example. And there was a lot of interest from human rights organizations on how they could collect evidence or recover information that could be used mm. in court. And for that, they were interested in talking to people who had worked at the courts and had an understanding of that process. But again, dif difficult challenges and, and, and helping uh, human rights organizations navigate that was a really interesting piece of work to do. And while I was doing all these things we just discussed, I also spent a lot of time as a consultant training uh, law enforcement and mm. military personnel around the world, um, usually places where there was some underlying conflict, going to places where, you know, you have people who are frontline practitioners who've really had their nose up against the threats and the compromises that are inherent in those kind of operational environments. You know, and if you say to them, well, honestly, chaps, Article 3 of the ICCPR says, you know, their eyes roll into the back of their heads and, and, and they stop listening. And especially if you're not offering them an alternative. So there's, there's really two things. First, you're not making an argument to them that they care about. I was a security service officer, not for very long, for about six or seven years. I never in my time in the security service heard human rights mentioned once. And that was not because the security service did not care about human rights, the reverse. It was a very law-abiding organization with very strict processes that you were absolutely enjoined to follow. But, you know, in the UK, we didn't have the Human Rights Act until 1998. I was out by then. So, you know, it just wasn't part of the landscape. We cared about British law. And that's the reality for most people working in law enforcement anywhere on the planet. They care about the laws they learned in their training programs. And so when you're there talking about international law, it's interesting. You know, they have aspirations and they may have dreams for where the country may go and they may see these, these values and these principles as aspirational principles they should aspire to. But at that same time, they know it's not part of their day-to-day. -day. Mm -hmm. So I'd, I'd had this experience of realizing that wasn't reaching the audience that people were spending a lot of money trying to reach. And I left Amnesty and went to the UN and the UN was specifically trying to bridge that gap. And so I was hired to be a guy who could bring efficacy-based arguments and historically grounded arguments to OHCHR trainings, because they'd realized they were having this problem, that they were doing this work and it was not getting traction. 
we spent three years trying to develop training courses that would be grounded in that reality. And we, we ran up against that classic UN problem, which is, um, you know, we, we, we discussed this before, you know, what is terrorism? Well, if you're at the United Nations, there's really only a couple of terrorist organizations, right? There, there's Al-Qaeda, um, mm -hmm. there's the Taliban, and subsequently there's ISIS and the affiliates of those three entities. And that's it. And they're all Muslim. So, you know, we can't be doing training courses where the only examples we're using are from one faith from one area of the world. You know, it, it's too pejorative. Um, and in one of my early drafts, I'd use some examples from 19th century Russian anarchism. And we literally had pushback. I said, I don't know that we can call these anarchists terrorists. And, you know, it's a fair point. The UN, it has to operate within its rules. And so what ended up was we lost just about all of the practical stuff. So I could use examples if I could find them from the European Court of Human Rights. What I couldn't do was ground those illustrations in a broader historical concept. And frankly, where the good stories are, yeah. where you can really draw people in and tell a narrative that, that will engage people and give them points of reflection and recognition in their own experience. It's really kind of frustrating, I suppose. One of the big critiques of human rights is that it's often very law-focused. And I suppose that's almost a classic example of exactly that, where you lose out on the, the efficacy of, you know, examples that people can engage with, making human rights real in practice because of an overly narrow focus, I guess, on, on the procedure or what things think it should be. Well, so the good news from that is that at the end of three years, I had an awful lot of material on the cutting room floor <laughs> that I didn't want to throw away. Uh, and that's where the book came from. You know, I'd done all this research that I hadn't been able to use and couldn't really see a way to use in my day-to-day -day professional life. You know, and I left the UN and I went and I was working for the European Union in Iraq and we, we tried to bring in some of this real world stuff. But the reality was to make the arguments that I thought were most persuasive, I'd come to realize that the only place I was really going to get to do that was if I did it myself in my own book. Yeah. There wasn't really um, an institution that was going to embrace that approach on either side. You know, and I, I've taught at the National Defense University and at Fort Bragg, so I've, I've gone to the military side and I'd worked with human rights organizations. And I, and I just knew that there wasn't anybody out there. Everybody was interested in it as a concept, but it wasn't a brand or a concept they wanted mm. to own themselves. And so the only way to get that argument out there really was to write a book for myself. And having a decent historical background by this point, a decent professional background by this point, a decent understanding of the law out there around these issues at the international level by that point. I felt I had an opportunity to do something that was a little bit unique. And having been involved in the social sciences, I'd, I'd been following a lot of the explosion we'd had in CVE research in the last 10 years. And so I was pretty across most of the developments in thinking in social psychology and anthropology and sociology and political science about why people became engaged in armed groups. And so it seemed to me I had a lot of historical examples. I'd read an awful lot of stuff written mm. by terrorists. I knew a lot about what political science was saying, and I knew a lot about the law. And I thought that could come together to give a practitioner, um, if it was written in an accessible way, a really good sort of foundational document to navigate a lot of the different challenges that if you were a young FBI agent or starting out an MI5 or a policeman in, you know, in, in, in Paris or, or for that matter mm -hmm. in, uh, in Beirut, you could use to inform your decisions. And what I would say to people is, look, there's no answers to this stuff. Right, they, they, you know, I am not a person who believes in political science as a concept. I believe in government. Right, I don't think human relations can be reduced to a science. No two organisations are the same. No two situations are the same, and they're always going to play out slightly differently. So, what I always say to people when I'm when I'm doing trainings on this stuff is, you know, imagine I'm giving you a basket of ideas. Some of the stuff in the basket is going to be relevant. Some of the stuff mm. in the basket isn't. I honestly don't know for you in the situation you're in which bits in the basket are going to be useful. But what I can tell you is if you've got that basket with you, there's a lot of stuff here that if you unpack it, 
you might be able to find things that will give you a handle on what you're facing. And that's about the best anybody can offer in terms of advice and guidance in the field. There's plenty of people that will tell you that they know the solution. And typically it happens to you know, reside in their discipline and in the research that they've done. There are some fantastic single focus, single disciplinary research projects out there that have enlarged and, and enhanced our understanding. But I absolutely guarantee you there's no answer. Because if there is, we would have found it by now. But I think there are basic principles in how terrorism works. I think there are basic principles in how you can do counterterrorism well and how you can do it badly. So the idea in the book was to take these basic principles and give a guide that would be useful for people to understand you know, where terrorists are coming from, why they might feel the way they do, what kind of responses tend to work well and what kind of responses tend to work badly. Now, obviously, when you've, you've got a book that's called Avoiding the Terrorist Trap, Why Human Rights is the, the Answer to Defeating Terrorism, there is a bias in the sense that I, I started this with an idea that I thought that operating within a human rights framework was a more effective response, largely because it prevented the overreaction that terrorists mm -hmm. are looking for. But I wanted to be pretty brutal about looking at both sides of that argument. So you know, I looked for examples where killing lots and lots of terrorists worked. I looked for examples where torture worked. And there are examples out there where you can make an argument in some contexts that both of those approaches had some tactical utility. And the key word in that is tactical. I can't think of a single example, and I couldn't find a single example, where it had strategic utility. The closest you would come to finding those examples would be countries like Russia and Sri Lanka. And those aren't democracies, right? And, and what's so interesting about Sri Lanka in particular is if you go down that path, you may be a functioning democracy at the beginning, but you're unlikely to be a functioning democracy at the end of it because there is an inherent logic to these kind of techniques and approaches that are gonna bleed into other areas of life. And so you have a regime in Sri Lanka that ultimately ends up with a president who's prepared to put the former military commander in prison and contemplate a coup when he loses the election. You know, and, and that's, that's the, the, the price that you pay for using these kind of methods. As intuitive as it may seem, and there's a lot of tough guys in the national security community that will say, oh, you just got to, you know, got to untie our hands. Our hands are tied behind our back. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got to take the gloves off. And, you know, Dick Cheney's famous phrase, we've got to turn to the dark side. Uh, my particular favorite is Jose Rodriguez, who was the head of the clandestine service of the CIA, who said, oh, we had to tell people in government it was time to put the big boy pants on. You know, <laughs> there are loads of these kind of macho statements out there. Benjamin Netanyahu, you know, a guy who you, a bit of a caricature as a politician, perhaps. But I mean, this was a guy who was in Israeli special forces and, you know, the elite Delta Force equivalent, in a, you know, a highly, highly trained Israeli commando mm -hmm. who took place in the, um, the Lod uh, airport hijacking, storming a Sabina aircraft to free hostages from, from terrorist hijackers and was wounded in the process, right? So this is a guy who has real world frontline experience and a guy whose elder brother was killed in the raid on Entebbe, mm -hmm. leading the raid on Entebbe. Right? And, and in the 1980s, he actually ran an institute called the Jonathan Institute, named after his brother, that focused on the study of terrorism. And he wrote a, a book called Fighting Terrorism, where he lays out this kind of, we could call it right wing, we could call it quasi-authoritarian, or we could just call it the sort of military tough guy approach to terrorism. And what you nearly always see with this approach is it makes things worse. And there are just a legion of examples of, of how that happens. And not just in one or two cases, but I've looked now at conflicts right across the road in a broad geographic and temporal spread going back 150 years. And these are constants. You know, these, these are constant truths almost. Uh, truth is a terrible word, but, but I mean, the, the, this is the norm. 
right? Let's put it that way. This is the norm, not the exception. So much that there's a very good academic, Louise Richardson, who wrote a book called What Terrorists Want. And it's a, it's a very small part of the book, but it was a phrase that when I read it, resonated with me massively, um, was a major reason why I wrote this book. She talked about the pathology of state overreaction. And she said, no, but I, I, I can't find a, a single example where states haven't overreacted to the threat of terrorism. And I thought that's really interesting because off the top of my head, I couldn't. And then I went away and did a lot of research and I still couldn't find an example. But in doing that research, I also found something else, which was time and time again, I would be reading original documents written by terrorist leaders or interviews with terrorists or memoirs. And I would find them very, very specifically talking about how it was their tactical and strategic objective to provoke states into overreacting. And you see this in some of the very, very first things ever written about terrorism. The Catechism of the Revolutionary, which is, I think, 1862, Sergei Naichev. I mean, he talks about letting the most bestial officials live because their bestiality will drive the people to inevitable revolt. This was a core terrorist concept grounded in the thinking of uh, Michael Collins and the squad. Dan Breen talks about the boomeranging of, of state violence, of British violence back on the Black and Tans. But it's, it's a great phrase and it, it's used a lot actually in, in terrorist literature now. And I think that's the earliest use of it that I can find. Of course, Dan Breen is one of the, you know, the great gunmen of the, of the Irish War of Independence. Time and time again, I, I looked at uh, uh, the anarchist movement, uh, Omnil Henri, the, the, the very famous terrorist attack, the bombing of the uh, Hotel Terminus at the Gardenau in Paris. He's put it on trial, he gives this great speech you know, where he says, you know, this is why I did this. And he talks very specifically, um, there's an incident a, a year before uh, Auguste Vallion throws a, a bomb onto the, the floor of the Chamber of Deputies in Paris. It goes off, doesn't kill anybody, does injure some people, doesn't kill anybody, and he becomes the first person executed, even though he hadn't actually killed anybody in France. And so Omi Henri says, you know, very, very specifically, this is why I did this. You know, you killed this man, even though he didn't kill any of you. And then he gives this great speech, this great phrase. You hanged us in Chicago, you decapitated us in Germany, you garroted us in Jerez, you shot us in Barcelona, you guillotined us in Montbrisson in Paris, but what you can never destroy is anarchy. But when you actually unpack that litany of complaints, and I went back and I looked at all of those cases, it's very clear to see he's, what he's talking about is state escalations, particularly the example in Chicago, right? There's the famous instance where the, what, what actually appears to have happened in Chicago is a hand grenade fell off the belt of one of the policemen. Or a, there's a detonation, and the detonation appears to come from the police side. The police open fire, and there's a number of casualties. And then they go on to hang, I think, seven anarchist labor leaders, basically, that had organized the protest, but who were not involved. And there's no suggestion they were involved in any of the violence. So you see constantly the, the, these little escalations take place, whether it's the, the example of Henri or whether it's the example of um, another really good one from the anarchist era, Santiago Salvatore, who he's a really interesting character because for a number of different reasons, if you ever visit Barcelona and you visit, you know, um, Gaudi's famous cathedral. Yes, yeah, yeah, I've seen one it. Of the, You've seen it, yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. He's a gargoyle, which is absolutely brilliant. So you can still, now walking down the Ramblas, you can still go to the opera house where he threw the bomb. Uh, okay. And if you do the tour of the opera house, the lady will point out that you know, he's in the cheap seats where he threw the bomb down into the, the stalls below. But again, his reason for doing that was he was avenging the execution of another anarchist, a guy called uh, Paulino Pallas, who had tried and failed to kill the uh, Captain General of, of Catalonia. And you see this time and time again, Martha Crenshaw calls it a modern form of feuding, this sort of action and counter reaction. But this concept is hardwired into terrorism. There's a, 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 he's not a member of ETA, but he's a, a Basque nationalist thinker called Kurtvig. He came up with this, uh, he wrote a book called Vasconia, 
or, or you know, about Gascony, basically, where he talked about the idea he called the, his theory of action, repression, action. That, you know, we'll carry an action, the state will repress us, and that will drive further action. And that concept was adopted as national policy at an ETA mm. conference, you know, very early on. We're talking the 1960s now. The early PLO, the FATA, had a concept they called consecutive detonation, the same basic concept. The FLM talked about the, they, they called it the engrage, the engaging of gears. Ramadan Aban was very explicit again about that. You know, he wanted to outrage the French because he wanted the French to strike back. He wants to polarize, right? This is what you get from the overreaction is you get a polarization in society. People have to choose a side. And, you know, if you have marginalized communities that are supporting that terrorist group, that community is going to be pushed or a lot of members of that community are going to be pushed yeah. into a decision to either support or not support the terrorist group, which they could have avoided. And, and you see that dynamic happening again and again and again and again especially in conflicts where there's a national element or an identity element. Fantastic example from, from Northern Ireland would be the Northern Irish Civil Rights Movement, very specifically um, the incident of Bentollet Bridge, right? You know, you have Bobby Sands talks about how that's the moment that radicalizes him. Both of the, um, the Price sisters were actually on the march. Dolores, I think it's Dolores Price, talks about the moment where one of the B-specials tries to smack her with a truncheon and the hatred in his eyes and realizing, I mean, both of these sisters were nonviolent protesters mm. until that experience. You know, and, and, and you find again and again in individual accounts, you know, that, this, that there's some sort of tipping point. And in fact, now that we're starting to ask that question in big N quantitative studies, mm. we're finding that experience of abuse at the hands of an agent of the state correlates as one of the highest reasons for why people become involved in terrorist organizations. And then if you look at the qualitative level, the individual stories, you see it again and again and again mm. and again. Another favorite IRA example of mine is Tony Doherty, you know, whose father was one of the marshals who was killed in Bloody Sunday. Uh, and then he goes on to join the IRA as soon as he's old enough uh, and is arrested trying to bomb a government building. And the interesting thing about him is the IRA turn him away initially because they think he's too close to it and that he's really? too angry and too upset. So the, the first time around, the recruiter sends him away, but they let him back in off the city. You know, he comes back six months later and they let him in. So you see these stories. So one of the things I find so interesting about terrorism is empathy crops up again and again and again, that people become involved because they are empathetic towards a group that's suffering sometimes because they experience it directly themselves, sometimes because they see it in other people. You know, a great example of that would be you know, Che Guevara. I mean, this is the guy who, whose ambition at the beginning of the journey is to work in a leper colony and help uh, researchers find a cure for leprosy, right? I mean, this is not, a, this is not an evil human being. This is a guy who's, whose goal in life, having experienced you know, illness himself as a quite a chronic asthmatic, is to go into medical research and to, to help find cures for things. And over time, he comes to realize in, in his account that there's social ultimately, not medical, and, and the real solution has to be found at the political level, and that's, that's that evolution that he goes through. But it, it's no mistake that one of the professions that correlates with terrorism amongst educated terrorists, at least, more highly than anything else, is medicine. You know, Che Guevara is not the only doctor, right? That you've got uh, George Habash, you know, one of the founders yeah. of the PFLP, he's a doctor. Uh, Rantisi, Hamas, is a doctor. Uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri, the current head of Al-Qaeda, is a doctor. Right. I mean, the, the, you know, partly this is an outcome of middle class upbringing in parts of the world where becoming a doctor or an engineer, another profession that correlates very, very highly with terrorism, is a route out of it, it's a route to professional security. And so a lot of families you know, encourage their best and brightest to go into those professions mm -hmm. uh, and the universities, people become politically engaged. So you can tell a story as to why this is that isn't grounded in concepts of empathy. But at the same time, I think it is quite remarkable, the number of medical professionals that do become involved in terrorism and give us their explanation for it that they, they saw a greater ill in society.
you know, a phrase that crops up in, in, in Che Guevara's writings. Another really good example is the, is the guy who killed um, Daniel Pearl. Actually, no, that's not true. The guy who kidnapped Daniel Pearl, we think that probably Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was the guy ultimately who killed him. But the, the guy who organized his kidnapping and was initially convicted of his killing, whose name I'm, I'm blanking on, um, was a student, a contemporary of mine, actually, at the London School of Economics. And he went back to Pakistan and got involved in Islamist extremist politics. But he, he described his moment of radicalization as watching footage from Bosnia. And he uses this phrase in court, this footage shook my heart. And again, that, that's not the phrase of a bloodthirsty, rabid psychopath. That's the phrase of somebody who feels. That ties in directly to, to what you're saying in terms of uh, an objective of terrorism is to provoke that kind of reaction in order to elicit that response. So we've kind of talked a lot then about um, what the objective of terrorism is and why people turn to terrorism. I think before we get on to the, the human rights specific approach or kind of your ideas in that regard, it'd be really interesting to discuss the efficacy, I guess, of certain counterterrorism measures in general. We kind of chatted about it ourselves earlier on. But in terms of human rights, you know, we, we've established certain red lines around, say, the prohibition of torture or issues to do with it, with a fair trial. There is often a debate, though, that these things tie your hands behind your back or give an unfair advantage to the enemy and that in certain circumstances, you know, they're, they're the only option. It'd be great to hear your thoughts on that because it seems like that's a very neat way or route into your guidance or your approach. So, you, you know, you often hear this, this and in fact, there's a, a famous um, Israeli Supreme Court ruling which actually makes the comment that, that states have to fight terrorism with one hand tied behind their back, but essentially that's the price of civilization or being, mm. you know, being walked. I forget whether that's a, a torture case or a targeted killing case, but it's often seen as quite a landmark reassertion of legal norms over mm. counterterrorism practice. And so it's, it, it's often lauded this judgment. But I, I've always really disliked that metaphor because to my mind, it's actually a very different one. And I, I we'll, we'll stick with the idea of having your hand tied behind your back because I, I have a, a tortuous version of the metaphor in the book. And I, and I basically say, no, it's, that's not it at all. What you're really being taught by the law and by human rights standards, it, it's more like being trained by a good trainer, right? You're being mm. taught to swing not wildly, not just lashing out. You're being taught to control your punches. You're being taught to look where you want to land the blow. What you're learning to do is to act with purpose and precision in a very measured manner. And I think that's what human rights law does help you do. I actually tried to take the metaphor even further, and I, I don't know if you're familiar with the rumble in the jungle and the, the famous Muhammad Ali fight, but I, course, yeah. I quite like the idea of rope-a-dope um, because th there's a good sort of metaphor in the rope-a-dope strategy. I mean, states have to learn to absorb punishment, which is incredibly difficult to do in a democracy because the second something happens, there's an outcry for action. The classic cry of the middle classes, something must be done, right? And that, that puts huge pressure on democratic politicians. And we can't wish that away. That's a real thing that every politician in public office has to grapple with. But to really be effective, you know, states have to be able to absorb punishment. It's an incredibly difficult lesson to learn. You know, people often ask me what I think the answer to terrorism is. And the only one I've ever really come up with, and it, it, it's quite a bit of one, is learn to live with loss. Because almost everything you do if you take a misstep, you will make it worse. So the smart initial response is really masterly in activity. Take a moment to really think through what you're gonna do, 
Take a moment to look at where the real vulnerabilities are for the terrorist organization. Think about your vulnerabilities. You know, physical security is a sensible thing to invest in, but it, it's not much of a, a preventative measure. You know, in the terrorism business, we talk about threat cascade, right? Which is you can protect a target. You don't eliminate the threat, you just move it somewhere else. So the threat cascades from, from prime targets to secondary targets to tertiary targets. You protect train stations and they go after airports. You protect airports and they go after bus stations or school. You know, it, it, it's just going to move. So you can harden and protect a limited number of targets and a limited number of people. But beyond that, you are going to be vulnerable and nothing you do on the physical security side is ever going to make much of a difference. And most of what we do on the physical security side is, and it's not my phrase, is, is um, security theater, right? And the, and the classic example in the UK of that yeah. is, you know, the, the, the warrior armored personnel carrier parked outside Heathrow, right? There isn't a weapon on that thing that if fired wouldn't cause more damage than most terrorists could accomplish in their wildest dreams. So the reality is this war machine is not going to become engaged in any terrorist attack. If it fired its radon cannon, you would level Terminal 2, right? You know, I mean, the, the, the shells would go through probably three or four buildings. So it's just not there for that. It's there as an expression of the state's strength. But it's not a practical counterterrorism measure. In the United States, it's even crazier. You know, I live in the US. If you walk around Grand Central Station, you'll see soldiers on patrol with, with M4s or M16s. Right? And they fire you know, military-grade ammunition that is designed to tumble in the air and go through three or four people. It's a weapon precisely not designed for the purpose that they're using it for. And yet they're wandering around in a situation where if they fired, they would probably again kill more people than the terrorists. So we, a lot of what we do is theater, and it doesn't really make much of a difference. Why do you think there is such the focus on theater? Not only the performative element, like you say, you know, the placement of the soldiers or the personnel carriers or whatever it is, but also the fact that in that context, those measures would not be effective. It's an interesting conundrum, I guess. Well, it, it goes exactly back to that something must be done problem, right? You have to do something. There really isn't something to do. So you do something that looks like you're doing something. And the easiest thing that you can do in the aftermath of a terrorist attack is double the guards. It's the Casablanca approach, right? Round up the usual suspects. You don't know what else to do, you do that. And in the counterterrorism business, and, and it's not, in some respects, the theater thing I don't have a huge amount of time for, although it may intimidate some organizations from going out onto the streets and doing things for a limited period of time. They may, they may lie low. It may have a cooling effect. So that's, it's, it's not that it's necessarily totally useless. I just think it has limited utility. But I, I, I think your big problem is you have to be seen to be doing something. Um, and that's the, literally the easiest thing you can do because it's right there, right? The soldiers are there. They're in barracks, they're an accessible resource. And the reality is you don't also probably know what else to do, right? That's, the, I mean, what, what, what is the answer to what the IRA wants in Northern Ireland in 1984, right? I mean, well, we're not gonna give them a United Ireland and we're not gonna let the IRA prisoners out. So those are probably the two political things we could do right now to have an impact on this. We could just catch them. Well, if that was easy, we would have done that already. So, you know, it's not like there's a super secret, twice as effective SAS waiting out there to be deployed into action right. or a, the really, really good MI5, right? I mean, it, you know, it, we are what we are. and We have the resources we have, and we've probably already been using them if it's part of an ongoing campaign. Mm -hmm. So even if there's an escalation, it's not like we suddenly have twice as many surveillance crews. You saw it after the Reading uh, incident just, just this last week. One of the first things I saw in the newspapers, you know, MI5 knew this guy was, was a potential threat. Well, MI5 know that five to 6,000 people are potential threats. So that's the, uh, the figures that we've seen. Mentioned by 
senior figures in MI5 in terms of the number of active cases that they're tracking at any one time. Now, my information is very, very, very dated. So I'm going to use this example because it is so old and I am sure does not reflect anything close to the reality currently. But you know, when I, in the early 90s, was in the security service, we had a very, very limited ability to follow people. We're talking single figures abilities to put a full surveillance crew behind a individual that had tactical and situational awareness, right? To, to follow somebody who is a player, who knows that, you know, knows the tricks of the trade, knows about anti-surveillance, knows about surveillance traps. You need to put about 20 people behind that person. An IRA active service unit was typically four people, right? So you can see immediately if you've got two IRA active service units on the British mainland, the surveillance resources dedicated to trying to follow those individuals, I mean, that's most of what HMG would have had at the time to do it. Now, I have no doubt that those resources are far, far greater today, but they are finite and they are incredibly expensive. And it's not even the cost. It's uh, Eliza Manning and Buller, when she was the director general of, uh, of the security service, had this great phrase about, um, you know, we, we have intense challenges of prioritization. And, and that's the reality. You know, you have everybody who works in counterterrorism bidding for those resources. And there will be many concerning plots and developments underway that people want more intelligence about. And they're going to want to find more information about. And surveillance is a fantastic tool for that. But there's a limit to what you can do. And you have to, you know, and if you've got ongoing investigations, you don't want to detach resources from those ongoing investigations because you're trying to reach a conclusion. Mm -hmm. um, it becomes really, really hard. It takes time to investigate somebody, um, which is why one of the most effective tools in the terrorism business used to be um, and is massively overlooked, you know, for example, by the United States, but something that the UK used to be very, very good at, and I, I suspect probably still does a lot of, is the disruption. And I'll use, a, I'll use a very, very old example of a disruption that no one could possibly accuse me in any way, shape or form of, of revealing anything. And this goes back actually to Egun and the immediate aftermath of World War II. And it is a classic disruption operation of the type that goes on today. Forget the name of the person involved, but I do believe he went on to be one of the presidents of Israel. It's not Chain Weizmann, but it's somebody like that. Is dispatched by a gun to kill a member of the cabinet in London. And intelligence reaches, intelligence from Palestine or the, from the mandate reaches London. But this is happening and they know where he is. So Scott dispatches a detective to knock on his door. He knocks on his door and says, hey, understand you're thinking about killing a member of the cabinet. I wouldn't do that if I was you. And that's the end of the case, right? I mean, you're not going to continue right. with your operation when a policeman's turned up on your doorstep and told you what you're going to do. So unsurprisingly, yeah. he goes straight to you know, the nearest port, takes a boat, a boat to, to, to France and, and, and heads for home. But that costs nothing. It's really quick. It's really straightforward. It can go wrong. There is a famous example of something similar with Carlos the Jackal, where he went back into his kitchen, picked up a, a machine pistol and came out and shot the three officers and killed them all. Right. So, you know, it, it's not without its risks. But as a general <laughs> principle, this idea of a sort of crash pitch where you knock on the door and you just, you know, and it, it, it's such an easy, quick, simple, low impact way to disrupt a terrorist organization's operations. And then they have to go through all the internal security reviews and protocols. Yeah. And they've got to figure out where the leak came from. It, it sows dissension, uh, distrust. It's a very low impact in terms of operational resources, high impact in terms of, of disruption on the other side. There's really no downsides from a, you know, a political or, or, or human rights perspective. There's no real risk factors. There's that one example of, of Carlos. But you know, in most cases, something like that isn't going to happen. Certainly not in the UK. I mean, most nine times out of 10, there's going to be a polite conversation on the doorstep. 
and the guy's going to shut the door and go, oh my God, <laughs> and start packing his bags and leave. You know, that, that's a pretty good technique. It, it doesn't require huge resources, huge amounts of training or anything. And it could turn into a crash pitch. You know, if the guy starts talking to you, you, you might actually have an opportunity to turn the guy. You could get quite a good return on the initiative by doing it. Or you could spend a year, you know, trying to get surveillance resources and trying to, yeah. you know, get a bug into the, the, the flat, trying to recruit an asset somewhere alongside them. You know, that takes a lot of time and effort. Um, you know, and if you're an organization like the security service, which I don't know what the staff of the security service is now, I think it's around the 5,000 mark. That's still not a lot of people no. when you actually stop to think about it. I think one of the interesting things about what you're saying there is, so I've done a bit of work around uh, more digitally focused surveillance. And that's often seen as a, a panacea because of the reduced resources and the, the, the potential for insight. But I think it typically misses exactly what you're saying. You know, it's the understanding, it's the context, it's the that yes, in principle, you can do things at a higher level, but without that ability to really gain specific insight. And somebody still has to watch the footage. Now, there are AI programs out there now that have been developed and, are, and have been deployed to try and predict types of behavior or, or have alerts predicated on types of behavior, like people gathering in a group in a place where you wouldn't expect people to gather in a group. You know, and, and those technologies exist. And the facial recognition technology to flag up people who are considered to pose a threat more or less kind of exists. Although I think you guys did some research on this, right? At, at Essex. Yes, yeah. Um, that actually the false positives far outweigh the, the, the successful identifications. Yeah, and um, the, the research we did, the accuracy wasn't, uh, it wasn't, wasn't ideal, really. I guess. <laughs> I, think, I think I cited it in, in something I wrote recently. You know, and a great service you did there, and it's true as, as well in the United States. But even if we could imagine a world where that software worked perfectly, which presumably at some point in the future we will see, to me, I find that quite alarming. I find the sort of the, the, the proliferation of passive surveillance where, you know, the, the solution to the problem is to surveil everything and then filter it out. Deeply alarming, frankly. You know, and you only have to look at China and, and, and coupling a concept like that to a concept like social credit. And you could see very quickly how easy it would be to control a society and how easy it would be to abuse that control. And I worry for the future of democratic governance if tools like that are deployed widely. And I think one of the things that we've got terribly, terribly wrong, ultimately, is this balance between security and liberty. Um, and you can yeah. see that right now in the United States, right? I mean, at the end of the day, 3,000 people died in the attacks on S September 11th. And you think of what we've done in response to that. And then you compare that to the 125,000 people who've now died from COVID. And we can't even persuade people to put masks on. Whereas they were happy to to sign away, you know, the, the, their library records, their, uh, yes, you know, their yeah, ability yeah. to be searched by the, the government coming back into the country, right? The US government can search an American citizen at the port of entry if they want to demand access to your phone. It's, I, I believe it's an offense to refuse. I mean, that's extraordinary that we've given that up. That, you know, the very definition of a fishing expedition is now possible. You know, it would certainly strike me as a constitutional infraction. I think they're only allowed to do it because of the context at the port of entry. Uh, it's not something they would be able to do in, in ordinary policing. But that, again, it's probably a matter of time. We've seen huge pressure put on Apple to, to reveal its encryption, for example, or how you can crack the code on the phone to, to access it. So, you know, you, you have this endless creep of state uh, intrusion into areas of life that, you know, these things, you don't get rid of them again. I always use the example of the, the ring of steel around the city of London, right? Mm. The height of the IRA mainland bombing campaign. We had armed police at every entry point into the city of London. 
And then as the, the peace process took hold, this presence dwindled and dwindled and dwindled and dwindled. I haven't been back to, to London in a couple of years, but the last time I was back, they still at least still had the plastic barriers at the checkpoints. There were no police there, but nobody wants to make that decision to get rid of them completely. Yes, yeah, that's right? interesting. It's very hard to. It's like taking your shoes off at the airport, right? Al-Qaeda tried once, unsuccessfully, to get a bomb in a shoe. Now, typically, if you try something and it doesn't work and you've blown your, you know, your USP or the, the element of surprise with yeah. your shoe bomb, you're not going to try that again. Now, this was what? This is 50 years ago now. And we're still all taking our shoes off all over the world because one guy failed to carry yeah, out yeah. an attack on an aircraft. But nobody's going to take responsibility for ending that. Yeah, right? the rollback is very politically difficult, I guess, isn't it? I think right. work. And that's the problem with all of these intrusive techniques. You own them. You own them probably mm. for the rest of your actual life if you put them in place, which is not an argument necessarily for not doing it, but it's an argument you want to consider re for really considering carefully yes. what restrictions you want to permanently live with. Because there is temporary legislation and there is legislation with sunset clauses. But even though we saw that with, with the Patriot Act, right? The, the idea was that there would be a sunset clause to it, but it's mostly still around with us because it just gets renewed and renewed and renewed. It goes through on yeah. and on. Or ultimately, as happened with the Prevention of Terrorism Act and the, the, the emergency legislation in Northern Ireland, mm -hmm. you eventually get the Terrorism Act 2000, right? Yeah. Sooner or later, somebody says, this is ridiculous. We're doing this every two years. Maybe we should just actually bite the bullet and have a law. You know, and, and, and people have become so conditioned to the restrictions around that law that there's not even much opposition to it. In fact, to most people, it makes sense. And that's, that's the danger. You know, and, and finding a way to get that balance right in an emergency is incredibly difficult. To say the least. I think um, we're, we're nearly up for time, but I think that's a, a really nice way to finish with what you think, I guess, a human rights-based approach to counterterrorism would look like. You know, Can you give us a specific example? Or uh, I suppose maybe what would make sense to a, a law enforcement officer or to a member of the security services? You know, what would be the argument do you think that would make sense to them? I think it's quite simple, right? The first thing is human rights legislation, the human rights norms are not that restrictive for mm. law enforcement. You can bug people, you can put beacons on cars, you can interview people, you can spy on people, you can run covert assets, you can run undercover offices. There's an enormous range. You can put eavesdropping devices in people's houses. You can have CCTV coverage. You could do mobile surveillance, foot surveillance, right? I mean, there's a myriad of techniques that you can use within the bounds comfortably mm. of where human rights law currently rests. What human rights law typically requires is that you do it lawfully, that you do it proportionally, and you do it only when it's necessary. Right? And again, those should not be difficult restrictions to adhere to, not least because you have your own challenges, right? You have your own resource challenges. Yeah. You don't want to be exhausted, right? You want to use your uh, resources efficiently. And those burdens, those tests, you know, proportionality, necessity, uh, subsidiarity, is there an easier way we could be doing this? They are tests that will allow you to use your resources efficiently. I can't think of a circumstance when I was an investigator where human rights law prevented me from effectively investigating somebody, right? I really can't. And you talk to most police officers, they'll tell you that honestly. I mean, there are always frustrations with the law, but typically those are frustrations driven by you've done something wrong, right? You've made a mistake and it's being struck yeah, down yeah. because you've made a mistake. And that's a competency issue. That's not a law issue. And that's an argument for better training and better understanding the rules governing the way that you exercise your powers. You know, but human rights law allows you to shoot people. But again, in tightly controlled concepts, you can't yeah. shoot somebody running away unless they pose an imminent threat to a member of the public. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if they're walking towards you with a gun saying, I'm going to shoot you in the face, yeah, you can shoot them. Right? That's a reasonable, legitimate use of force, particularly if you know the individual involved has a history of shooting yes, people in the yeah. face. There are very limited 
restrictions on the use of force in a circumstance where, you know, it's necessary to protect life. You know, the, the rules are quite permissive. Classic example from the States the other day when the guy's running away with a, an already used uh, taser. Well, yeah. he's not posing a threat to life. You've got his driving license in his car. You know where he lives. You know, where's he going to run to? The reality is it was, just, it was completely unnecessary yeah. and unjustifiable. And it doesn't matter that there was a fight. and It doesn't matter that he grabbed the taser. He's not posing a threat to the lives mm-hmm. of anybody else. Just let him walk it off, go and arrest him the next morning. It's not that hard. But, you know, people get caught up in the emotion of the moment and, and, and their, their identity as an officer is challenged. And there's a lot of respect issues bound up in that, both both implicit and sort of subconscious, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it is complicated, but that's why the rules are there. And if you know the rules are there and you know what the rules are, they stop you from making mistakes. You know, it's the same with interviewing people, right? I mean, if you know how to interview people effectively, you can get lots of people to talk. You can't get everybody to talk. Of course you can't. Mm-hmm. But you know, an example I often use is Andreas Brevik, right? I mean, this is one of the worst terrorist attacks in modern European history. And the world's most human rights compliant police force, the Oslo Police Department, you know, the Norwegian police, arrest the guy, sit him down, talk to him, and they get him talking. You know, in a nice comfy room with two comfy chairs at 90 degree angles and a painting on the wall and water and soft drinks and biscuits, yeah, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And you know, he talks, he cooperates. Um, you know, because he wants to talk and he wants to explain why he did what he did. And with a lot of terrorists, there's that going on. So, I mean, you can, you can find ways to make a connection in the most extraordinary circumstances. But again, not with 100% utility. No way. Every approach is difficult. Now, you compare that with torture. Torture's the same in some respects, in that sometimes people will cooperate if they're tortured. But sometimes they won't. And in fact, there's a lot of research that's been done on highly motivated individuals who have been facing torture. For example, we have a lot of archives from the Gestapo. Darius Rajali, an, an academic at Reed College in, in the United States, in Washington State, he wrote a very good book called Torture and Democracy. And one of the things he got access to were, were all these Gestapo records. And the Gestapo found actually that torture didn't work very well. And they found it worked very badly against CDM members of resistance cells, you know, because they were very highly motivated and very, very committed. Mm-hmm. The Gestapo, mind you, banned torture. And they banned it because they didn't think it was a very effective in, uh, interrogation technique which is not to say they didn't torture people, but they didn't do it to get information. If you look at the, 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 the Americans used during the war on terror, you know, that came out of a concept called learned compliance, right? Again, that's not about getting people to tell you the truth. That's about getting people to do what they're told. I mean, there was a concept that was developed in response to the kind of brainwashing that happened in the Korean War, where allied mm-hmm. pilots were shot down and then forced basically by sleep deprivation and, and beatings and being withheld food and water to give statements about Western imperialism and, and attacking yeah. their governments. Um, and that was the training that people developed this resistance to, or these, these, these sort of escape innovation courses where they, they trained pilots to, to resist some of these techniques. They took the techniques of learned compliance and applied that to the concept of interviewing. And they're two very, very mm. different things. And what you get from it is almost no actionable intelligence. You know, we know this because the Senate Select Intelligence Committee and the House Armed Services, because the Senate Armed Services Committee wrote exhaustive reports where they looked in huge detail to try and find whether there had been any utility whatsoever, whatsoever to doing this. And there's a famous speech, and I'm, I'm just looking down at my notes here to see if I can remember the date. John McCain, when they introduced the yes, Senate Select yeah. Committee report in the, in the Senate, you'll be familiar with it. It gives this fantastic speech. I mean, one of the great Senate speeches about why torture is wrong. He has this wonderful phrase, and I, I, I wrote it down because I, I, I do love it. It says, if our enemies act without conscience, we must not, which is a great phrase. But of course, this is a guy who had been tortured, who had been subjected to those learned compliance techniques and had lied, right? So he knew from personal experience, and how often do you get to say that, 
the yeah, torture yeah, that's the very unique element isn't it yeah, yeah i mean it's quite an extraordinary story but i mean there are loads and loads of examples of people who were tortured who didn't give up what they were being tortured for the obvious one would be Khalid sheikh mohammed who knew the identity of bin laden's courier and lied about it despite being waterboarded mm. 168 times right so we know that torture doesn't work either but we also know that torture comes with a whole host of ancillary outcomes and problems right one is you torture somebody you've committed an international crime and you will be a torturer to your dying day a crime with no statute of limitations and no geographical boundaries. So I always used to say to people, you know, just remember, I do this, I, I, I did a training on this not so long ago, and I, I said to the group, this is in Africa, said to the group, just remember, we still prosecute Nazis. It's not many of them left, but we are still prosecuting Nazis. So you could do something today that may be haunting you 70 or 80 years later. So think that one through, because you have individual culpability if you do it. So you've got that issue. You've got the psychological damage which has been hugely documented uh, in the American military. And in fact, psychiatrists have come up in the last 15 years with a term for it. It's called moral injury. The psychological damage that is done to somebody because they've done something that they cannot square with their conception of themselves as a relatively decent human being. Uh, General Petraeus has this great phrase about Abu Ghraib. He calls it non-biodegradable, right? You can't take it back once it's out here. Those images, they're there forever. And they just come back and back and back. You know, there's a reason why when ISIS murders somebody, they put them in an orange jumpsuit. It's about creating that sense of moral equivalency between what they're doing and what you did. I mean, you lose, you pay a lot of, a lot of high prices for using something like torture and you get very, very little back in return. You get very unreliable information collected in a circumstance where you drove the interview. Now we train people now in policing to allow people to give free accounts of what they've done or what they've experienced. And the idea behind that is you let people provide information, tell the story in their own way. And then you know, once they've got it out and they've had a chance to, to, to lay out their stall, then you go shopping. Then you start looking at different aspects of it and testing it. But you, you start that way. And it gives you a, literally a, a bill of goods that you can look at and, and test and explore. And you know, if they're lying, well, you've got a, a narrative that you can test. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got other evidence you can bring in and apply to the, the account that they provided. Now, if you're torturing somebody, it's all directed and closed questions, mm -hmm. right? It's when did you do this? Who was that, right? You, you don't have the opportunity to be wrong. So the prejudice you bring in or the misconception you bring into the interview is going to drive that interview forward because you can't smack somebody around demanding to know where Peter is and have him suddenly say, God, it's really funny you keep asking me about Peter. No, the guy you should really be asking about is Paul, right? <laughs> there's, there's, there's no chance for that to happen in an aggressive, coercive interview. Whereas in an interview where you're developing a rapport and the person's talking, you can start to have that conversation. Truth doesn't spill out immediately, nine times out of 10. You know, it emerges, you know, mm -hmm. sort of mouse-like into the light blinking and you know, you, you, you have to entice it out with cheese. You don't sort of grab it full formed initially. You, you have to entice it out, you have to lure it out. Ali Soufan, the FBI agent who was in Yemen after 9-11, is this great account of an, an interview where he, beautiful interview technique. The subject was diabetic. And so he went to the trouble of finding sugar-free cookies, which had the dual effect of being actually a very dignified and graceful gesture, thoughtful gesture. But it also has that slightly sinister undertone of, we know quite a lot about you, you know, which, which completely knocked the person he was interviewing back on his heels. Another technique he used in Guantanamo a couple of times until again, you know, with, with amazing predictability, the military stopped him, is he let people call home. You know, he had a sat phone. And people hadn't talked to their families for three years. So one guy said, well, I'll tell you what, if you let me, let me call my wife, I'll tell you what you want to know. He gives him the phone, he calls home, talks to his wife for a few minutes, hangs up with the phone, cooperates, and then goes back to the prison and says, hey, if you talk to this guy, let you ring home. 
So three more people want to come and talk. And then the commander finds out what's going on and immediately shuts it down. But again, I mean, how is that a worse approach? I mean, bear in mind, these people have been locked up for years at this point. How is there any downside to that as an mm-hmm. approach, as opposed to strapping them into a dentist chair and smearing them with menstrual blood, which was, was apparently considered a much more effective technique? You know, I mean, you, you, you look at it and it's just craziness. And so much of it is driven by people at the top, you know, the Dick Cheney's of this world, who are faux tough guys. Trump would be another example, mm-hmm. right? People who've never been in a forward area, have never hefted a rifle, have never done anything dangerous, and have probably never been in a room with a terrorist or a criminal. But they want to look tough and they want to act tough. So they, they, you know, they have all these kind of swaggering, you just have to look at the language they use. You know, that, the whole dark side thing, you know, it's seductive and it's tough and it's, you know, I'm telling you the way it is, I'm pulling back the veil, this is how real men talk about it. And they're all basically playing a role. And it's not a role that has a particularly useful place in effective counterterrorism. There is a role for hard men. There are some people I firmly believe who can only be stopped by violence, but it should be your last resort. And if you can find another way of doing it, it's in your interest to find another way of doing it. What I tried to do in my book was to be realistic and say to guys, look, look, I understand the stakes. You know, I've worked in a lot of dangerous places. I get it, but I also want to win. And, and there's a phrase very early on in my book where I said, look, this isn't actually a book about human rights. This is a book about defeating terrorism. It's a book about winning. It's what ultimately I care about. I've often joked, I often describe myself as a human rights mercenary. I've essentially found myself doing a lot of work in human rights, but my interest, my primary interest has always been what works. What is an effective counterterrorism policy? That's what I'm interested in. Over time, I came to realize that actually the human rights was there to stop you from making mistakes. It is a hell of a guideline that stops you making the kind of mistake that it turns out the terrorists want you to make. So the, the final line in the book and the line I like for this is, you know, the, we often talk about the war of the flea. It's Mao Zedong's famous description of guerrilla warfare, which is often misunderstood. And it's often equated to the idea that lots of flea bites kill the dog. But if you actually read on guerrilla warfare and you read Mao's metaphor, a metaphor, by the way, that is quoted in quite a lot of ISIS and uh, Al-Qaeda documents. And Mao gets quoted a lot in Al-Qaeda literature, uh, amazingly. What the, the, the metaphor actually is, is it's not the flea bite that brings the dog down. It's the dog scratching the flea bite that brings mm-hmm. it down. The dog gets tired. The bite gets infected. That's what ultimately wears down the dog. So it's not the flea. The, you know, the final analysis, it's really all about how the dog responds to the flea. And counterterrorism and terrorism, it's the same relationship. Terrorism is ultimately a flea bite. No terrorist organization on earth has ever been big enough or strong enough to go toe-to-toe with the state. And every time they've tried, like ISIS or like the Taliban in Pakistan, they have been routed pretty quickly. But if they're smart about how they use their violence, the war of the flea, and they use it, that phrase of you know, political jujitsu, turn our power against us, it could be a very, very powerful tactic. There's a guy called David Frumkin wrote a book, uh, sorry, wrote an article in Foreign Affairs magazine, 1975, called The Strategy of Terrorism. And he talks about this in great detail. It's one of the best articles about terrorism ever written. He doesn't have anything, obviously, from the, the modern era. It's up to basically Bader Meinhof, and, and that's it. But there's nothing in that article that isn't 100% perceptive, accurate, and right. And that's, I think, the big takeaway. At the end of the day, the only real existential threat that exists in terrorism is the existential threat that we pose to ourselves. Thank you for listening to this episode of RightsCast from the University of Essex Human Rights Centre. You can subscribe to RightsCast and find more of our episodes on Spotify, Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Please share with your friends and leave us a review if you feel like it. We'll be back soon with more regular episodes.